0: Hello. This is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us at Merge in downtown Iowa City. We've called this program What's in a Word? The Translator's Challenge. And our conversation tonight won't be an ending, but a beginning, the beginning of a three-day international conference on the UI campus called Reading and Retranslation," supported by a major project award from International Programs. Our guests in the first segment are Sabina Gultz, Department of German and Comparative Literature here at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Sabina.
1: Thank
0: you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And next to her is Adrian Rose from the Department of Classics and the MFA Program in Literary Translation also at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Adrian. Pleasure to be here. Uh huh. And both Sabina and Adrian are organizers of this um, rather major project for the next two days, reading and retranslation. And at the far end, we're pleased to welcome Laura McClure, who um, teaches in classical and ancient Near Eastern studies at the University of Wisconsin. Thank you for coming, Laura. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Pleasure. So, Sabina and Adrian when most of us pick up a book or a magazine and sit down to read we think we understand the process read the words and you know use our intellect to comprehend what we're reading and somehow in this magical process of the mind we make sense of the text and its larger meaning what might we be missing or what subtle or not so subtle influences exist in the text that we aren't consciously considering when we read
1: <laughs> Ooh, that is the big question yeah <laughs> Um, Well, I guess it's true. It seems like a straightforward process (laughs) if you know the language and you know the script. Uh, But as it is with many things that you do intensively and for a long time, the more closely you look at it or deal with it, the more complicated it gets. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's many ways to approach this question, but... I guess I'll go to where we were in the class already today. I mean, the reason I got really interested in thinking about reading was because I was working on women poets. And I realized that they were being read within a framework that made everything that they actually were trying to accomplish disappear. And, uh, And that led to a much more... I mean it really led ultimately to a complete rethinking for me of what a text is and what reading is and because we sort of when we in our everyday functioning we think that a text contains information and stories and things and when we read them we take those back out and that's not really what happens. Mm. I mean, I think, the, I think the readers have a much greater share in creating the meaning and in making the meaning happen and in constructing what the text says and also applying it to wherever you mm. are at the moment. And so it's, it's, a very, it's actually a very active, transformative process, mm-hmm. reading is. And it has a lot to do with power, mm-hmm. that there are readers who are more empowered than others and they, they can speak with greater authority. Also, I mean, this goes somewhere else. Maybe I shouldn't go there mm. right now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, I mean, okay, I will. <laughs> uh, basically, if you function in a given cultural context, it means you read things a certain way, you connect them to other things you've already read, that you know how people talk about things, and you kind of apply those and that has the effect that you can you don't have to argue very much you can you know make things uh, understandable to everybody else very quickly because it's sort of a shorthand because mm-hmm. there's a lot implied and a lot that people already know and when you want to go against that and you want to actually sort of make something else readable that actually happens in the text and that is different from what is already around <laughs> Then it's then it's almost like you have to go against the gravi- gravitational pull. It takes a lot more explanation. It takes a lot of rethinking. It takes you really have to kind of engage the minds of your interlocutors and try to make them see things differently. And that kind of struggle I see mm-hmm. in when I work on women poets, for example, because that's what they are up to. Mm-hmm. They, they need to. They are being, they're being read, and they need to find a way to actually get access to the point where you get to be the reader. And that's a very, that's a very complicated struggle. And so it's, it's, it has to do with power and with, and with imagination, mm-hmm. trying to see things mm-hmm. differently. Yeah. So in really simple terms, if somebody says, well, just
0: read it. Just read the text. <laughs> it's all there. It's, uh, you know, um, it, You
1: can't just say it speaks for itself, right? No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of when you do that, then you are likely to end up with the way people usually read, which is not neutral. It's a certain way of looking at things. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. uh, uh, Adrian, um,
0: how do you come at this this whole process?
1: How do I come at it? Mm-hmm,
2: <laughs> <No>.
3: mm-hmm,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, I am the more the retranslation component of the reading and retranslation. Uh, topics of this mm-hmm. colloquium and of this conversation. Um, and I guess I should just start by defining what retranslation yeah. is. Um, I think most people are familiar with the term translation, but what is retranslation? Mm-hmm. Uh, a retranslation is, in the most basic terms, a translation that is the second or later translation of a source text or an original text in the same, uh, target language. Um, so for example, in, uh, like, let's say Shakespeare, uh, sonnets of Shakespeare translated into French for the first time would be the first translation. And then any subsequent later translation that follows a translation of Shakespeare into French would be a retranslation, and my interest is uh, as a classics, as a classicist, and a translator is working with Greek and Latin uh, poetry. And for me, as a classicist translating Greek and Latin poetry, every translation that I do is a retranslation because these texts have been around for thousands of years, um, and they've been retranslated almost as soon as they've been written. Um, so the tradition of translation is, is quite long. Um, if you think about it in musical terms, uh, like sometimes there's, like, so cover songs is a way to sort of yeah. analogize uh, a retranslation. So if you think of the song, um, All Along the Watchtower, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan original, um, Jimi Hendrix, Covered it in 1962 or 68, and made it his own. Mm-hmm. Um, he like redid it, re, instrumentalized it, mm-hmm. um, made it for a new audience, and then, in retranslation terms, every subsequent musical artist that covers that song is is performing a, a kind of mm-hmm. retranslation or a rereading and. In literary terms, a retranslation can update the language um, of a f- of an older translation mm-hmm. and offer offer it up to a new audience.
0: Um, that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So something that was in Middle English mm-hmm. um, needs needs to have um, for us to understand it today. We need some more modern language introduced in order to carry the the, the thought,
4: or just even. Um, thinking 50 years ago, an English translation of a Greek tragedy, um, that some of the language is very outdated, even even though it's not that long ago. Right, right. And so a new translation is is going to, to use fresh language and bring in maybe new interpretations of the text mm-hmm. um, and contemporary issues. Uh, even, even those things can make it into a translation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in a piece that the two of you wrote for the Press Citizen that appeared a couple of days ago, um, there was an intriguing quote, I think. Uh, you said, um, um, arts and humanities perspectives need to be reasserted in a digitized world where algorithms increasingly read us. Mm-hmm. So I take it we're talking about more than just Google Translate there, but we carry your thought a little further
1: um, yeah, I mean that it really goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think reading is about power, and it's also about. I mean, it's also about programming. Actually, I mm-hmm. think that there are ways in which texts program their readers. This is a little more complicated than I probably can explain here. But come to my talk tomorrow, and I'll try to mm-hmm. explain it a little bit more. Uh, and I think that the. I mean, the reason I think it's important to think about reading in the context of digital our digitized new world Mm -hmm. is because certain the way uh, text processing works through algorithms is based on certain assumptions about what those texts are and how you process them Mm -hmm. and uh, when you come from literary reading you realize that uh, very much that the texts are not about conveying information, and that they are really, and that some literary texts, and I think the ones I'm most interested in, they require a really conscious, active reader, and and conscious, somebody who knows that they're reading, and they're constructing their relationship to the text Mm -hmm. consciously, and, and that's the humanities aspect, mm-hmm. is that you're, you're a human mm-hmm. being, you know, a conscious biological <laughs> entity who is dealing with the science system. And, and you're not just consuming the science. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you're really, you're, have a living relationship to that and a critical one, possibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that's what humanity's perspectives are. And but on the other hand, of course, when we have uh, these days, when we leave our traces on in the Internet and Google already knows what we like and knows what we feel and so on. I mean, that's when the tables are turned in a way that I think we need to process mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, change a little bit. I mean, I think that's yeah. it, I mean, basically reading is about power. And I think it, that is very clear in these, with mm-hmm. these new issues, too.
0: Well, so Laura, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, uh, retranslations of ancient works. Um, in uh, in all these various retranslations that may have occurred um, for Greek texts, for example, um, interpretations or understandings are laid out related to an entire historical epoch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something you you look at today. Uh, you might have a much different understanding of what was going on in that larger part of the world than perhaps someone did who, who was the second translator. Uh, uh, what, how how do you think about that when you begin to work on the texts you work on?
4: I think it's really important to remember that our access to the ancient world is uh, is mediated by uh, translation yeah. and uh, and a long uh, a legacy of translation, beginning in uh, the Romans, for instance, were translating ancient Greek mm-hmm. and and adapting ancient Greek and and making literary translations of ancient Greek poetry uh, and so um, you can't have a direct connection um, to the ancient world you have to always be self-conscious about how you're understanding it what how you're accessing it mm-hmm. uh, you need to know the languages I mean you, you need to know the cultural context in order to understand something about the original but there's always a leap between the original Greek or Latin word and the the translation into any other language that mm-hmm. you'll never have an equivalency mm-hmm. and this is going back to i think sabina's point um, what humanities really offers and what the study of language offers is this kind of complexity that i that that can't be simply translated word for word mm-hmm. um, and can't uh, you know is, is it it helps people to think differently <laughs> to think mm-hmm. imaginatively uh, in ways that i don't think are offered by say stem
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, when we were communicating before the program, you said maybe we should just talk about the difference between a literal translation and a literary translation.
4: So literal is trying to capture uh, as closely as it can the original meaning of the text um, Mm -hmm. to the extent that that's possible. And so this might be more of an academic translation if you're talking about literary texts. Um, And a literary translation is, is really creating a new text um, using the original as sort of a springboard, um, so it doesn't follow closely word for word or line for line, but it's actually um, it's it's creating something new. That's an artwork unto itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, tell us a little bit about the speakers who are going to be here. I, I'll turn to Adrian and Sabina just for a second in this next couple of days at Reading and Retranslation, the full colloquium.
1: What are what are some of the topics you're going to be delving into? Well, we have people from uh, different countries working in different languages and part of the idea for the colloquium was actually to do something uh, comparative that is what we could call comparative literature and translation together and really put together a program with speakers with vastly different backgrounds and Mm-hmm. And talk about reading and translation because it doesn't matter what language you work in. That's something that yeah. concerns all of us, and I think the more perspectives we have, the the richer mm-hmm. that conversation will be. So I don't know. We have Nasima Zaro. How do you pronounce your last name? uh from who's a philosopher from Frankfurt in Germany. We have uh, uh, now I see I can never Michelle Woods, who, is a, who will be on the program later, who's uh, w- written a book about retranslations of Kafka. We have Kaiser Koskinen from Finland. We have help me I can't think of anybody. Uh, Madeline Campbell from <laughs> Scotland. <laughs>
2: Uh, one of her specialties is inter-semiotic translation, mm-hmm. translating between media. Mm-hmm. So not mm-hmm. translating just, not just, but translating text to text, but um, mm-hmm. text to uh, painting or dance or mm-hmm. music. Um, and mm-hmm. Martin Klebe is from
1: Oregon, who will be talking about uh, Robert Walzer, and a Swiss, very interesting Swiss writer. Mm-hmm. Um, who else do we have? I can't. I, I should have brought the program. No, 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 no problem. <laughs> but but um, we have Neil We have actually two. Two of the uh, presentations will be by former or current uh, graduate students. Uh, Neil Seiler translating from uh, Sanskrit, who will be talking about tra- translation of uh, Sanskrit philosophy into English, which uh, where you have to bridge not just the language and the huge historical distance, but also deal with the fact that you have completely different philosophical traditions, Mm -hmm. each with their different terminologies. And Mm -hmm. that's a very interesting program. Mm -hmm. And then another, uh, 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 Tyler Fiotek and Laura Moser will be talking about Greek poetry by Mm -hmm. women and gender in Greek poetry. So I'm very excited about Mm -hmm. all of those presentations. I just wanted to
2: say that uh, we said this in the class, but this particular colloquium, reading and retranslation, is the second in what we hope is a continued um, sort of gathering of these diverse languages and approaches uh, around the topic of reading. The first uh, colloquium was... At the University of Oregon, which uh, Sabina co-organized with one of her colleagues out there, um, rethinking reading in no, rethinking gender in reading, mm-hmm. um, and some of the participants from that conference are are here, uh, mm-hmm. and we hope so. Ours is reading and retranslation, mm-hmm. and we hope that we can continue the the thread of reading um, at at future colloquia. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and Laura, when we were communicating ahead of time, you said that perhaps we should talk about our translations by women, which earlier there has been reference to work by women. um, How have translations by women shaped how we understand the classical past?
4: So there have been very few women translators, believe it or not, in in classics. Um, And currently, Emily Wilson is getting a lot of press for her translation of The Odyssey. um, And she very much approaches it from a feminist perspective. Um, I'm interested in actually a much earlier period, the beginning of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. when uh, popular translations were being made available of Greek and Latin texts. And this allowed a more general audience access to classical antiquity, especially Mm -hmm. the uh, less educated um, people like women who were not yet admitted to the university Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and abroad. And so their access was, they used translation to learn about Greek and Roman texts, and then they used it as a springboard for their own Literary creations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in, in doing so, they shaped, reshaped how we look at the classical past through their own adaptations and, and translations.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what are the things that, that um, stand out as being different from translations that were done for centuries by men?
4: So, what's the difference between? A- yeah, I
0: mean, what, what, what does one notice when, when comparing uh, these, these translations?
4: So a male translator is more likely to take a male perspective Mm -hmm. and um, maybe to not see certain issues that, or uh, just the way a term might be translated. For example, a word that uh, connotes sexual violence in an ancient Greek epic um, might be downplayed, uh, the violent uh, aspect taken out and kind of whitewashed, Mm. um, sort of erasing this female experience that was not uncommon in the ancient world. Uh, That's one way you could see it. Operating, Mm -hmm. Um, a a female translator might pick out something to emphasize, or might emphasize something a little bit differently, uh, a detail about everyday life maybe that um, a male translator would not find important. Mm -hmm. Um, So,
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, so we're gonna be talking about this in other segments as well, but how it seems to me just as a casual observer that there are certain edited versions or certain translations of various works that seem to be favored you know you read the forward to the book you read the the, the little um, preamble and and the um, there's a credit perhaps given to an earlier translator and this was the one I always thought was was um, the perfect translation, but I've decided to make another on my own for whatever reason. What kind of respect is paid to the earlier translators of these various works um, as one approaches you may have disagreements with the way they've done things, but what kind of reflection is made on earlier translations when one begins a new one?
4: so I'm not a translator mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I do think that's a good point that translators engage with other translators, and mm-hmm. that's the side I think they. Encapsulated in the idea of retranslation, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes there, there are very, these are, are very deliberate responses to standard. So, for example, Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey is a response to standard, probably the Lattimore translation of the Odyssey, and the mm-hmm. the kind of class classic, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certain standard translations that have been used in the classroom and read by a general audience that a new translator might, um, in addition to providing a fresh, f- fresh language mm-hmm. um, that's more contemporary. Uh, might be taking issue with just the the rhythm the the um how the line is translated how long the line Mm -hmm. is Uh, Mm -hmm. could be stylistic issues is in addition to content based issues Mm -hmm. Um, but and sometimes i assume people take up the challenge of translating just because they're interested in it yeah even though there already are many good translations of the Mm -hmm. odyssey that's not Mm -hmm. going to stop people from continuing to translate
0: them Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, Sabina, you've um, mentioned the, the gender issue. We were, I guess, you must be teaching a class on poetry and gender this uh, semester.
1: Actually, this semester I'm teaching a class on this event, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mm-hmm. basically spent the semester preparing and reading the papers by the participants ahead of time, and mm-hmm. and reading other, uh, you know, scholarly literature on the topics. Mm-hmm. And so, this is the culmination of our seminar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so, but gender is everywhere. So, Mm -hmm. we don't have to teach a special class on it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but it is, but I think it is true, isn't it, that within the last, what, 40, 50 years, gender studies have become important in a way that they were not before in higher ed institutions. And, and, um, you know, thinking about things like, uh, was this translated by a male and may that have affected the way we've learned about this text or this history or whatever. Um, I
1: mean, I think as, as maybe I will let Adrian t- speak to that too, but just briefly, I mean, I think that's just another one of those instances that, uh, I mean, perceptions do... I mean, first of all, I would say the our literary tradition that we've inherited is a male tradition <laughs> this is centered around and and that ha- affects it in so many different ways and that means if you're a woman writer entering it and trying to write in it, you you are being read in the context that doesn't fit you I mean so I, and that's it's it's not just because men and women think differently, which I wouldn't even say necessarily, but because the the language and the metaphorics and the whole literary discourse is already using gender to control and steer reading so uh, and but uh, now i kind of got sidetracked a little bit but basically uh, every translation is a reading and so everything i've said about reading applies to translations and maybe at that Mm -hmm. point i can well i
2: I just i guess i wanted to pick up on your comment about the rise or the popularity of, of gender studies in, in, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: in academia or as a, as a topic of study. Mm -hmm. And there's something timely about, um, certain translations and when they can be made. Um, like for example, Emily Wilson's translation seems to be, she talks about it as a kind of feminist intervention in the male translation, um, History of of the Odyssey by mm-hmm. changing some of the misogynistic and other um, views deliberately. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's something, there's a connection between uh, our reading readiness uh, culturally for mm-hmm. the kind of translation that that she's that she's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can, no one really even
4: thought about gender and translation. Like, I mean, I work on gender and I've been working on it for three or four decades, and. No one even really thought about the gender of transla- the translator. Mm. We as a field have not really even thought about translation, even though from the very beginning, your very first Latin class, you're translating on a daily basis. <laughs> but, it's, but we never think about that as a process, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. as a tool,
0: mm-hmm. a skill. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, before we wrap up this segment, is there, is there any, uh, you've already talked about one outcome that you hope uh, will follow this particular? Uh, colloquium. That in fact there will be another one and another one and another one. But are are there other um, particular goals you have or hopes that you have for this particular gathering? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we have lots. I mean, what 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 I'm hoping for, and I think Adrian too, is just to have a productive and pleasant exchange and a stimulating discussion over those two days. And people are welcome to join us. Mm -hmm. It's a public event. And eventually we will uh, try to, as we did with the last conference, uh, publish a volume Mm. of the papers that were presented and Mm -hmm. maybe some of the graduate student papers too Mm -hmm. that were in the seminar. Uh, But yeah, for now, we're just looking forward to our live interaction yeah and and i I suppose there's
0: a desire that all of us will think critically when we read that we'll try to look beyond just the word on the page and figure out what what larger context there might be to anything we're reading
1: yeah exactly i mean to be aware that you're reading and that as you read you actually shape the text
0: yeah yeah
1: well, thank you for starting us off. So, Sabina thank Gultz, Adrian
0: Rose, and Laura McClure, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll go to our next uh, panel in just a moment here. Uh, please thank our guests. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is What's in a Word? The Translator's Challenge. And I have the pleasure of bringing three new guests into our conversation. They are just next to me, Kaisa Koskinen from the Faculty of Information Technology and Communication Sciences at Tampere University in Finland. Thank you for being here, Kaisa.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Mm -hmm. Next to her is Michelle Woods, Associate Professor. Of English at the State University of New York in New Pulse. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. In fact, especially on a late notice because I guess we had hoped would be here was held up, and we're especially pleased that you could join us. So thank, thank you. you. Um, and next to her is Laura Moser, a graduate student and teaching assistant in the UI Department of Classics, recently completed her MFA in literary translation. So congratulations on that. And thank you, Laura. Thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to sort of continue with what we were talking about in the first segment and uh, focus on some of the complexities encountered in retranslations. And if I may, I'd like to start with you, Kaisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your main considerations as you take on a text?
5: As a, re- as a retranslation. As a retranslator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I would need to approach this from a researcher perspective mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I, I am not primarily a translator let alone mm-hmm. read translator, mm-hmm. but if I, if I think of uh, what would be the complexities uh, that I've encountered uh, having studied read translations mm-hmm. and retranslating translating for almost two decades, uh, I might perhaps uh, start with the fact that uh, as a retranslator, translator you enter a pre-existing network of texts mm-hmm. and translators so you are not you you are not the, you are not able to make the first impression mm-hmm. because that has already been made so you need to somehow accommodate yourself into a situation where your readers already have an idea of the text they may have a preference for a particular transla- translation that already exists they may hate and dislike a particular translation that exists and and you yourself probably have read one or several of the existing texts. And now entering the scene or re-entering the scene as a re-translator, you need to somehow come into terms with who you are in that process and how you fit in in the picture. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the answers, the solutions can be varied. And, and, and mm-hmm. translators, retranslators may find their way uh, among predecessors in different ways, some are very antagonistic, some are rebellious. They say that I'm going to be the uh, make the best ever translation and I'm, I'm going to outshine everybody else. But that's only one way to go. Others may decide to very actively ignore all previous versions, not even look in that direction mm. and trying to sort of distance themselves as well as they can. And that's one way to go. Others might perhaps want to... Uh, Embellish an existing translation, sort of start from what they already think is pretty good, but making it mm-hmm. somehow more adequate to the times, more contemporary, whatever. So they, you, can, you can choose your path, but you can't ignore the fact mm-hmm. that there's others others have been there before you. This would be for the retranslator, I think, yeah. the most yeah. important element in the, in the process. For the readers, there's plenty of others, and and for the publishers, there's still others. Mm -hmm. For example, money issues come into play a lot, and and retranslation often is linked to issues like uh, copyright waiving. So that Mm -hmm. might be a decision. The the decision to have a new translation might depend on whether it costs or not Mm -hmm. for the publisher. Or, for example, retranslate translations are often uh, favorably reviewed, so it's it's good news for the publisher. It's uh, good publicity, and also for the retranslator. Actually, so if you are a retranslator of a well-known classic, for example, if you are selected into that role, it's it's a it's a career move. Mm. It's it's great. It's mm. a it's a very really, very good thing for you, and you will get praised. In a normal state of affairs you will be praised for your accomplishment. That's how the reviews function. We have, uh, um, Sabine was talking about programmed readings, and, and definitely in retranslations we have, we, we are culturally programmed to accept, expect improvement. Uh, so, so we tend to see improvement. And, <laughs> and, and so, so whatever the retranslation is like, it's probably going to be reviewed as an accomplishment, as a, as a cultural achievement, as, as, as a, a, a finally a contemporary, finally a, a faithful rendering of a, <laughs> of a classic. So, so definitely for the retranslator, mm-hmm. it
0: is a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in an earlier message we shared, uh, you said there is a double bind of newness and remembering yes. that <laughs> yes. each translator uh, <laughs> needs to negotiate. I guess that's sort of what you were just talking about.
5: Uh, yeah, yeah, to an extent, but also what I meant with that. This is actually the the topic of my paper on Saturday, so I might not go too deep into this <laughs> now. But but the thing is that there's the uh, there's the temporal distance. It could be long in the te- in, in the case of classics, or so it might be shorter for m- more contemporary texts. But still, the the fact that you are reinterpreting. Uh, a non contemporary text forces you to take into account that the original is not contemporary. Somehow, your translation needs to reflect the fact that it is from a different period, from a different era. At the same time, because there's also this older translation or more or several of them, your translation needs to signal the newness of your translation so that it stands out from the previous one. So you you need to negotiate Mm -hmm. uh, the necessity to be (laughs) new, fresh, contemporary, and also somehow reflect on the oldness, the non-newness of of the source text. And this can be quite complex. And, and you said there's something called the
0: anxiety of influence. So what does that mean? <laughs>
5: anxiety of influence is that, 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 that those who are into literary theory will recognize the reference. But, but, but together with my colleague, Oti Paloposki, who, who I've been working together with in, in terms of retranslation, we, we use this phrase actually to, to, to explain the necessity to take into account that there was somebody there before you. The, yeah. the predecessors. So, so you get, there's always the anxiety of not being different enough of following in the footsteps or copying mm. the, the, mm-hmm. the earlier version and the, the willingness to break new ground to, to somehow achieve a completely different version. Mm-hmm. So anxiety mm-hmm. of influence would link to what, mm-hmm. I, what I started mm-hmm. with, the, the, the yeah. necessity to accept your role in a chain of Translators mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then all the anxieties that come with it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. That's that's so interesting. And and Michelle, you are a retranslator, uh, if I understand correctly. I'm not,
3: unfortunately. You're no. not. No, I've oh. I translated some work, but I've written about retranslation. You've written about yeah, it. Okay, so. so you write
0: about retranslations of Kafka. And Tolstoy, and Tolstoy, yeah, and yeah. others. So tell us about that. What what is uh, what have you discovered?
3: Well, it really speaks to actually some things you're talking about in the earlier um, panel, and that Kaiser's talking about here, which is um, with Kafka, it was an issue of copyright. Schocken Books, who were the main uh, translators. Uh, publishers of Kafka's work wanted to renew their copyright uh, or to be the still the premier publishers of his work and so they brought out new translations which were based on re-editing of Kafka's work uh, which had been edited by his friend Max Broad after his death Um, but um, the texts were much more experimental Broad to get them translated into English he wanted them to to be readable uh, not to be odd and not to finish mid-sentence or have this this strange punctuation Uh, and so he changed sentences he left chapters out. And so in the 80s, there was this project to um, produce these editions in German, of um, which were more comparable to what Kafka left in manuscript form. And so in the 90s, Schocken Books started to uh, produce these retranslations that were. Um, translations based on these new editions, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, The Castle, it has chapters that weren't in it. It also ends, it does end mid-sentence. Um, and, um, you know, that's controversial to some, but uh, the translator who's, who's Irish, he's lived in America for years, you know, he said, well, we now live in a postmodern age where we're used to, you know, strange length of sentences and, and things, you know, finishing that way. And we can read it because we're more used to this kind of experimental fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that was interesting um, but also Mark Harmon this translator He um, his way of establishing himself as a retranslator uh, was to really attack the earlier translation uh, by the Muirs, which was the first translation in the 30s and um, it was a very kind of he took it apart he took them apart and um, which in some ways uh, some of the blame was really on Max Broad and his editing but I got really interested because they were a translation couple they were married to each other. Um, and when you read any uh, essays about the, these this couple, they kept talking about uh, the man uh, and uh, the husband. And uh, he was a poet and a critic. And he was very religious. And uh, he hated modernist writing or didn't like it. He was, you know... <laughs> um, and I thought, well, what about Willemure? And she was, everyone said she was the literal translator. She just translated it and then he poeticised it. Mm-hmm. But she and her memoir said, no, it's 50-50. And she kept coming back 50-50. We split the work down the line. But then when I went to her archive, it turned out that she was the she was the translator. Full stop. Um, mm. And she said in a diary entry in the 50s, she says she literally calls it the patriarchy. She says they will never, they will never come face to face with the fact that I, I'm the translator, and yet that will be lost to, to literary history. You know, the legacy will be all be my husband. Um, and so that for me as a scholar was really important and really moving, you know, she was really emotional, um, in this diary entry. And I thought that has to be known, you know, um, and also she hated the church. She, she wasn't religious like her husband, which she thought was a patriarchal institution. She was very, uh, avowedly feminist. And the other thing I discovered was that they were both Scots speakers. They'd grown up on tiny islands off the Scottish mainland and English was really their second language um and because people kept talking about how formal their english was in the translation but they knew that to actually um to to be published and to be taken seriously by the literary establishment at the time they had to write in a certain english um and so they uh kind of suppressed mm-hmm. their Scots accents. But she had writings in her archives of her speaking in Scots and talking back at a radio programme uh, where these two Englishmen were speaking like this. And she says, it's the rat tat of the military Uh, colonial masters basically and she's and she does this in scots and with real humor because she was seen in literary history as this very dour calvinist (laughs) uh woman but very funny and you know she talks about having orgasms uh (laughs) from dream of cream fingers and orgasms when she was in her 60s you know in her journal just a totally different person and yet that was very Suppressed in her um, in her literary writing in her memoir, mm-hmm. um, but she was yeah really overseen by literary history because and seen as kind of a bad translator in some way, out of date. Um, she wasn't the real translator. She wasn't the creative uh, one in the couple. You know, so mm-hmm. I think things like that are really mm-hmm. important. And because we often we laugh at mistakes and and certain choices that translators have made, but in some ways there's there's reasons for that. You know, it might be choices they've made, but there might be reasons behind those choices. And the more you get into that, the more interesting thinking about um, both the translators and the text becomes, I think.
0: How much do translators or retranslators explain themselves in footnotes and whatnot?
3: (laughs) Footnotes... um, Footnotes are interesting. Um, uh, I think mainly in what we call paratexts, which are, um, you know, uh, introductions. um, And it used to be that they just, it would be almost an apologia, you know, it'd be kind of like, well, you know, this isn't perfect, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think now it's more interesting. I think we're getting more of the personality of the translator. Um, Publishers realise that this is actually, they don't want to hide the translator. You know, they don't want to pretend it's not a translation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some... um, uh, kudos involved in that or they have a famous translator translating Uh, um, i think what's great about the digital age uh is the uh ability uh to have more um uh presence of the translator Uh, so that often if i've read a translation i'll go oh who's so and so that translated it and i'll go online and they've done interviews with the paris review or with words without borders or um they're so because translators are great readers uh, of the text they've spent uh, you know hours of blood sweat and toil going over it, and they really know that text intimately so there I love reading what translators have to say because they're way into the text they're a portal into it uh, they're a great mind uh, not only about the characters and themes but the the um, form and how that relates to, to the themes and the characters. Um, and I think what's unfortunate about translation reviewing in this country and in in, in English-speaking language in England and Ireland, where I'm from, is that, you know, you'll get a reviewer saying, so-and-so, they translated this excellently, well, <laughs> nicely, you know, whenever they use one term. And you realise that the reviewers haven't even tried to go online yeah. and kind of listen to what the translators have said, and yet they're, they're the real guide into... Mm-hmm you know, what's interesting about this This book. How should I get into this book? Mm So, um, so I would say to anyone who's interested, if you've picked up Knausgaard or Elena Ferrante or any of these best-selling translated writers, is to go online and you'll see a ton of uh, interviews and writing by by their uh, translators. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, who I just saw Anne Goldstein give a talk. Uh, She translated Elena Ferrante, and and no one knows who Elena Ferrante Mm -hmm. is, right? She's this uh, uh, reclusive Italian author. So Anne Goldstein, the translator, has become the kind of face of of this this author uh in america and she's fascinating talking about the Mm -hmm. the the form of the books and so on yeah
0: well well could we talk just a little bit about the Tolstoy translations too you said you've you've been um studying Anna Karenina yeah yeah
3: yeah no I, I got interested uh in that partly from uh I was in the archive of a woman called Isabel Hapgood who she was a, an American uh, translator, one of the first Tolstoy translators in the 1870s, uh, 1880s, her archives at the New York, York Public Library. And um, she uh, hated the first Anna Karenina translated translation by Nathan Haskell Dole and wrote this public denunciation of it. And she was right, it was from an abridged French version. It was a mess. Um, but she, she was... Fascinating because she visited Tolstoy and wrote an article for The Atlantic in 1891. And she goes to Yes Polyana, and she hates Tolstoy. She can't stand him. She's annoyed by his misogynistic views. And she spends the entire time there baiting him about his terrible ideas about women. Uh, And then slightly falling in love with his wife, Sophia. And so that got me really interested (laughs) because Sophia is a model for uh, Anna, but also Kitty and Dolly in the novel. And that got me interested in going back to... um, the early translations of Anna Karenina into English, which were all by women. Um, And this is, um, you know, 1901, uh, Constance Garnett... Um, uh, then Louise Maud with her husband. Uh, But Constance Garnett, uh, she was. um, there was a famous article, Socks, I don't know if anyone read it here, in 2016 in the New York Review of Books. And and, Janet Malcolm, the famous writer, she says, we've got to forget the new translations. Let's go back to Constance Garnett. But she said because she's Victorian and she spoke the language that Tolstoy would have spoken if he'd spoken English. And in fact, he did speak English. He was quite fluent in English. Um, But in fact, Constance Garnett in 1901, was living in an open marriage. Her husband was living with another woman that, <coughs> she, that she was friends with. And she was a socialist. She dated George Bernard Shaw. Um, she traveled to Russia on her own. You know, she was this fabulous and, and very radical woman. Her sister was friends with Eleanor Marx aveling and, um, and so on. So I think uh, thinking about women at this time who are, who are you know, meeting Tolstoy and translating Anna Karenina, I think it makes us rethink the female characters in the book. Um, because often it's seen as this very misogynist thing. He kills off Anna when she starts to um, come into her own, you know. Uh, but actually, they're really interesting portrayals of women in the book. And, and I think the translators kind of respond to that. Mm-hmm. And of course, in translating it into English, are um, uh, thinking about the role of women uh, in 1870s Russia, uh, as the woman question is becoming a big question and that's talked about in the book but also in the early 1900s in as as women were going to the col- to college for the first time mm-hmm. becoming involved in and in the socialist movement and trade union movement and so on uh, so it's really interesting i think and it allows us to think about rereading the book in a different way yeah yeah
0: so interesting, thank yeah. you. Um, so, Laura, let's let's move to you. Um, you are, if I'm not mistaken, a translator of uh, of Greek and Latin literature. Yeah, right. yeah, and you had said to me earlier that the, you have a recurring question about the justification of doing retranslations of works that have been translated and retranslated so many times.
6: Yeah, I guess it's something um, that I think about a lot. Um, I think because if I. Tell somebody that I study translation, or that I translate uh, these Greek and Roman texts, which were written thousands of years ago. Um, that is usually right. The first question, um, maybe that someone would have for me, which is, um, well, have they not been translated um, before, or <laughs> enough? <laughs> um, you know, is um, is there is there anything out there that hasn't been translated, and is that you know, um, is is the lack of that mean that there's not really sort of a space for a new translation in the same kind of way. Um, and yeah, I guess to me, uh, that always makes me feel like I need to, I need to come up with a justification <laughs> for why I do what I do, um, which um, maybe isn't really quite fair. But, um, and I think there are, there are like answers that I go to quickly. Like I say, sure, yeah, the Odyssey has been translated a million times, but yeah, like Emily Wilson's translation into English is the first translation into English published by a woman. Um, and it was like, I don't know, last year, two years ago. Um, that's a big deal. Um, so that's like an easy justification um, mm-hmm. that I feel like I can, I can point to, right? So even though the text is old and the text has been retranslated so many times, um, who the translator is really matters. And, and it informs um, sort of the, the translation um, as a new text and as a creative act. Um, but I guess the other reason why I think about it is because I wonder, like, do I have to justify this? Like, <laughs> like m- is there a world maybe where I don't know if I said I was a painter, would somebody say, "So, so why do you, why do you make paintings, though?" Like, I haven't haven't been people, haven't people been making paintings for a long time? I don't know. It's not it's not a perfect <laughs> analogy, I know. But um, but if we really do believe, as I think many of us in this room do, that uh, literary translation translation is a creative act. Um, then I, I wonder about that justification question a lot, and um, I think I think about some of the same things that Kaisa you were talking about with um, the kind of concerns of the translator. And um, as someone who works with the so-called classics, and when I use that word, I mean Greek and Roman classics, um, Greek and Latin classics. Um, you know that that's a that's a weighty tradition um, to be working under, and it um, it can feel a little. Oppressive, And um, not only in just this long history of how things have been read and who was doing the reading and who was mm-hmm. doing the sort of defining of this ancient world, which is really so far away from my m- like current moment, um, but also just even my own training in that field. And, and there's, it's, a, it's a discipline with a long um, history and a long tradition um, of things being done a certain way and even trans- words being translated a certain way. Um, And it it can feel, yeah, like uh, just hard to even sort of think about what it would look like to do something um, that pushes the boundaries of that tradition Mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, But I I do think that is what new translations can do in classics, right, is push those boundaries. And um, kind of, I think this this has come up a couple times today, but yeah, this idea that... um, that it, especially in a discipline that is so traditional in so many ways, like how can translation be a tool for opening that up and opening up um, the conversation about these texts that people might think have kind of been solved. You know, we, we know how to read that. We've been reading that for a long time. We know what it means. Um, and, and I think, of course, that isn't true about any mm-hmm. text, but, um, but pushing, pushing that boundary in classics is, is sort of, I guess, what makes me happy. So, so that's where mm-hmm. I find myself yeah
0: yeah well well. another thing you mentioned was the audience
6: mm-hmm. um
0: you're thinking about today's audience rather than you can't put yourself back 500 years 700 years into what th- that audience reading audience might have um, perceived from your translation right
6: yeah um yeah absolutely yeah i think i mean audience i think matters to any translator and and i think um I think thinking about, yeah, I guess who the audience of my translation might be, um, I guess is a, yeah, how can I, how can I approach this question? Um, it's such a big question, yeah, the question of audience, I guess. Um, I think about it because um, as a student, um, you know, my my translations might be for an audience of a workshop um, or <laughs> Um, In some cases, a classroom of peers or um, an audience at a colloquium or (laughs) um, a conference. Um, And I think depending on who we're translating for, um, we might translate in a very different way. And um, uh, I think something Laura McClure mentioned in the last session was, like, as a classicist, we are from, like, day one in Latin one. Mm -hmm. um, We're translating. We're asked to translate. um, I know in audio recording, you can't see the quotes that I'm putting around the word translate, but, um, but it is sort of this version of translation um, that we teach our students to do. um, And it's, it's translation with a certain goal and with a certain scope and for a certain audience, which is the classroom and your teacher and showing what you know. And that's the tradition I was trained to translate in. Um, So when I, you know, came to the University of Iowa and was studying in the MFA for Literary Translation, um, I was really asked to think about translation in a different way. And um, it wasn't to show what I know to the instructors Mm -hmm. that had taught me how to read ancient Greek. Um, It was to bring a text to an audience who might not have ever read that text Mm -hmm. before um, in some cases, because some of these classics are very well-known, but some of them aren't, right? And some of these classical poets might be, be read um, for the first time, um, in translation. And, uh, yeah, so I guess so those are some of the things that come up for me mm-hmm. with the audience question, mm-hmm. if that gets out that question a little yeah.
0: bit. Yeah. Is there any wrap-up thought, uh, any of you would like to make regarding your understanding of retranslations?
3: I think it's a great way to read, um, if you have a chance to even compare, um, certainly, with Kafka Tulsi, or Tulsi, these are the classics to compare even a, a stanza, say, of the Odyssey in different translations. I start a class each semester looking at Alexander Pope's 18th century opening and then a more recent one and actually I've just included Emily Wilson's. So it's the first stanza. And it tells us about Odysseus, but there's such a different picture of Odysseus. He's a real hero in Alexander Pope's one, <laughs> very different in Robert Fagel's one, and even different in Emily Wilson's. So from the very first stanza, you know, the students understand that um they can choose to read Odysseus in Whatever way they choose to read him, you know, mm-hmm. um, that uh, different translators have seen him as a different person mm-hmm. and a complicated person, but complicated in different ways. And in fact, um, uh, Emily Wilson's used the term is complicated, which has become <laughs> such a Facebook term. <laughs> and she uh, you know, so now and the students immediately, they're like, yeah, I, I, I get that mm-hmm. in a way that, of course, 10 years ago, who would have got that, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's so important. It's such a great way to become a reader. Mm -hmm. Is looking at different, even tiny elements of different Mm -hmm. retranslations.
0: Yeah, well, thank you all so much. This has been really uh, wonderful fun. So, Kaisa Koskinen, thank you. you. And thank you very much, uh, Michelle Woods. And thank you, Laura Moser. So appreciate you being here. Thanks. Please thank our guests. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part three of our program on translation, where we're asking, what's in a word? In this segment, our guests will take us beyond words and to an interpretive space where translations are made in multiple art forms. I'm pleased to introduce Madeleine Campbell from the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, next to Madeleine is Oleg Timofeev, an adjunct assistant professor in the UI department Invasion in Slavic languages and literatures. Thanks for being here, Oleg.
7: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Mm-hmm. And at the far end, we have Thomas Rose, an assistant professor of classics at Randolph Macon College. Thanks for making the trip out here. Appreciate it.
8: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Madeline, may I start with you? Um, as you know, throughout this program, we've been talking about reading, translation, retranslation with language as the tool of expression. Um, With you and your fellow panelists, we're going in another direction in this segment and looking at translation beyond words. Um, I see that you've recently published a book about translating across sensory and linguistic borders. So what does that mean?
9: Yes, well, this book is uh, by artists, by dancers, by performers in this Theater, theater arts performers, um, visual artists, sculptors. And in the book, they talk about their translation practice. And they also try to provide an explanatory framework for their translation practice. We also have poets. For example, we have the poet Vani Capildeo, who's translating Philippe de Ronsard, um, his Ode à Cassandre, we have Clive Scott, who's translating Baudelaire's Bohémien en Voyage, and he has six successive versions, which are increasingly mixing modes of expression. We have a sign art poem, which is uh, performed in British Sign Language that's translated by Kyra Pollitt into a concrete poem. So we have all sorts of mixing of media. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, so, so tell us about uh, sort of the the translation element. Are we in some of these cases moving from something that began as text and is now being interpreted, say, as dance or?
9: Yes, it can begin as text, or it can begin as a painting. Uh Um, It can begin from anything, Mm -hmm. really. Um, What differs? What makes it different from literary translation? In one. Uh, in one sense, and different from intermedial artworks in the other, mm-hmm. is that uh, first of all it's not confined by verbal means, um, and secondly, um, it doesn't um, or it is it originates with a source, a source text or a source image, which could be in a different language, or it could be a piece of artwork from a different time. And it's typically carried across, which is the ancient sense of the word translate. It's carried across from that source into a different medium or one or more media, and typically also across cultures.
0: Hmm. So how does it differ from adaptation or illustration?
9: Yes, that's a really good question. The um, structuralist Roman Jakobson in 1959... Defined intersemiotic translation as an interpretation of signs, uh, verbal signs into non-verbal signs, and that is quite a narrow, narrow translation. Uh, na- yeah, a narrow translation of the term intersemiotic translation, but it tends to be a- a applied to adaptation. And so, for example, today when we speak of intersemiotic translation, people tend to think of translation to theatre or into television or film. But that uh, immediately puts the focus on the actual product of the translation rather than the process. Mm. And it also um, creates a sort of border, an artificial border, between our different means of relating to a text, the sensory, the different senses, And so um, adaptation tends to be focused on the medium and dictated by the medium, whereas what we are now in a post-structural sense, uh, defining intersemiotic translation as, is not dictated by the medium. The uh, intersemiotic translator looks at an original artwork or source text and decides what medium to use. Similarly, illustration is dictated by the medium that it is being you know, the illustration. Response is different, again, because response departs from the source text or original, takes more artistic license, perhaps, and less acknowledgment of the original than intersemiotic translation does.
0: Hmm. Are there any examples you could give us of, of uh, um, maybe this translation through performance?
9: Yes. So, for example, um, we have in the book, we have Cara Berger, who um, translates Helene Cizu's, um book, Inside. But she starts, and this is already a retranslation, she starts by um, using the English translation by Carol Barco, the 1986 translation. Um, and she, uh, her intention is not to dramatize the text, which would be adaptation. Her intention is to allow the original, what she calls the vibrative properties of the text, which is a Deleuzean term, to traverse her performers. So it's a completely different way of looking at drama or theater. Another example of performance is Laura Gonzalez, who's also in the book. And she took the case studies uh, by Freud of so-called hysteric women and she read um, their original letters, um, paintings, looked at their photographs, read accounts by doctors, and then she allowed those women. Uh, she allowed her body to become the theater for these women, and uh, set up a series of one-to-one performances where she sits with a quote-unquote spectator, and goes through this original re-experiences. Um, the hysterics experience Mm. and the spectator or sitter helps her through it. Mm. That's another form of translation. We also have examples of uh, translation through sculpture. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, we have in our book Brian Eccleshall who um, takes the precepts that were originally uh, formulated for literary translation by Antoine Berman who wrote about the 12 Deforming Tendencies. Um, and it was really written in order to encourage loyalty in the translator towards the source text, and warn them against these Deforming Tendencies. But Brian Eccleshall um, chooses the example of sculpture, and he is a sculptor, and takes uh, the Deforming Tendency of Ennoblement, mm. which is the tendency of the translator um, to perhaps take something that they consider, perhaps, clumsy and make it slightly more stylish, more palatable for a modern audience or something. And he um, chooses the example of Jeff Koons, who uh, everybody's familiar with these immense statues that he made of uh, balloon animals. Mm -hmm. And he made them in uh, mirror-like steel polished steel and huge and uh, Brian talks about how that act in in sculpture was akin to the act of ennoblement, taking the vernacular or the common aspect of balloon animals and aggrandizing them, but also preserving an essential element of the source, which is the frivolous nature of it. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. an example. There are also examples of sound sculpture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of sound, we might go to Oleg here, as as Oleg Timofeyev. You're well known here in our um, part of the world as not only being a teacher, a fine teacher, but also a really quite brilliant musician. And um, and so. Thank you for being on our show tonight. A direct, and great honor. And, and to talk to us a little bit about what, how you conceive of uh, this notion of translating beyond words.
7: Well, you know, like that character in Moliere's uh, Bourgeois Gentilhomme, who discovered that he was speaking prose all his life. You know, I discovered that I was doing uh, intersemiotic <laughs> translation. <laughs> you, you know, the other literal reference that comes to mind is that of Hedgehog and Fox. You know, I am being a hedgehog. Meaning that you know in the since our knowledge becomes more and more digital, I can see that how in the future people will google me or whatever the search engine will be at the time, and they will find out Oleg Timofeev. see also Russian guitar yeah. because I single handedly blah blah blah, you know I don't want to sing this ode to myself, but basically my claim to fame is uh, the rediscovery of a different instrument. And it's a parallel, you know, if you are in the guitar world at all, it's a parallel universe. A uh, guitar that was only used in Russia and then in the Soviet Union, it had seven strings. It was originally foreign importation. And that's where things become interesting, because Russia is always uh, a little you know, uh, has a strange relationship with the West. Sometimes it's very close, sometimes it's very distant. In the 19th century or late 18th century when this importation happened, uh, it was actually very close to the West. So the Western elite in Russia was considering itself Western. And so the people who actually started playing those guitars, they were Czechs and Poles. And uh, the the founder of this tradition was a former harpist, Andrei Sikra, also Russified Czech. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you look at this, the Russian guitar versus, uh, you know, well-known six-string guitar, they look very similar, just different number of strings. But so it happens that the instruments are more complex than just, you know, wooden pieces with strings attached. Uh, Every instrument, in my view, is a combination of software and hardware, and software is a set of habits and uh, artistic ideas, what you do with it. And so what interests me right now, you know, very locally, in very kind of hedge, hedgehog kind of way, is like one trick per life, um, uh, uh, is uh, how the music for the six-string guitar was translated for the Russian guitar. So you have uh, basically international cosmopolitan musical language, pieces that are very transparent, very... Obvious for a Western listener, and the Russian guitar models it all in a very kind of pleasing way. Everything becomes mm-hmm. very sonorous. All the rhythms become kind of obscured by some strange ornaments across strings because it was also developed in this appreciation of harp. So you know, it's probably intersemiotic. Uh, it's definitely doesn't start from words mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know it doesn't go very far it's from one guitar to another but mm-hmm. t- tomorrow i'm destined to try to demonstrate how it works or doesn't work mm-hmm. i mean what usually doesn't work and i tried it in front of a room fulls of guitarists usually it's very difficult to demonstrate what's different
0: hmm. but so it's hard to demonstrate what's different, and yet you hear of what's different?
7: Well, that's what we're about to find out. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the questions I'd like to have all of you uh, answer, or think about answering, and, and certainly I'll go to you, Thomas, as a, uh, his, as a professor of um, the classics and ancient history and whatnot, how much does someone who's engaged in either the original translation of something or a retranslation, or even all of us just being active readers, how much do we need to know or learn about the the setting of the time, the history of the time, the, the sort of background to any kind of text, or for that matter, uh, Russian Qatar how, how much do we understand without really looking more deeply than what we see when we first engage with a piece? Yeah,
8: c- context is really important. Yeah. I, um, I- If I can continue with Oleg's Archilagus analogy, I'm I'm kind of a hedgehog, too, and I spent a lot of my time in the early Hellenistic period. Um, And so if we're talking about translation without words, in that time, money talks, and Mm -hmm. so do monuments. Mm -hmm. Um, I can give some examples of how that works, but first maybe I should talk a little bit about context. so the Hellenistic period is, is the time period after uh, the campaigns of Alexander um, through Western and Central Asia all the way to the Punjab. And that, those campaigns and that expedition for Greeks living on both sides of the Aegean, their um, horizons opened up in a way that's really difficult uh, to, to overstate. Um, to give a couple of examples, there's, there's a guy called Clearchus of Soli. It's a city on the island of Cyprus. He uh, was a philosopher, did his education in Athens, um, and traveled to Delphi. And then later on, we find him inscribing um, Delphic precepts, know thyself, and other things like that, Mm -hmm. in the Temple of Apollo, in a city called Iconum on the Oxus River on the border between Afghanistan and Mm Tajikistan, which is unbelievable, in the third century BC. At the same Mm -hmm. time, roughly, there's a city called Demetrius in central Greece founded by... One of the successors of Alexander, a guy called Demetrius Polyarchides, the besieger of cities. Um, and there uh, we found this cache of painted gravesteing, grave markers, and uh, they preserve names and ethnics of people who moved to Demetrius and worked there and lived there and died there and they 're from Syria and Phoenicia and from Libya and from Crete. they're coming from all over and this exchange of, of, of ideas. Um, Is happening in in both directions we often have this idea of greeks bringing the gifts of culture to these benighted folks but in fact they're encountering uh, cultures which in many cases were more sophisticated and much older than their own um so um i'm not sure where i was going with all of this (laughs) lost in the context (laughs) i guess i was going to give some examples of translation um, Mm -hmm. without words but i just wanted to give an idea of how Mm -hmm translation in both of those registers is so important at a time when Greek culture goes global and global Mm -hmm. culture comes to Greece. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see it in coinage, uh, for instance. And um, to return to the successors of Alexander, all the successors of Alexander have one fundamental flaw uh, that they all share, and that's that none of them are Alexander. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we can see them wrestling uh, with that. Um, as they try to imitate Alexander or separate themselves from Alexander, or in rare cases, excel Alexander, which is difficult to do. Um, but on their coinage, they uh, early on, uh, after the death of Alexander, they adopt very similar uh, iconography uh, in their portraits of um, heroes and gods. Alexander generally had a portrait of Heracles on the head side and a seated Zeus on the, on the tail side. And They kept that, but they started to to bring in little subtle changes, little translations, by which they asserted their individuality uh, and their own power. And eventually we start to see them putting their own portraits uh, on these coins. Mm -hmm. So Heracles is replaced by a Demetrius or a Ptolemy um, from these mints that are operating in Alexandria uh, and on the Tigris River and in in Greece. Um, We also see it in in monuments. um, in a world that's so polyglot and multi ethnic and diverse, a good way to get your message across is to set up something really cool in a place where a lot of people are going to see it. <laughs> uh, and we see this happening in big Pan Hellenic sanctuaries sanctuaries for the god Apollo at Delphi, Delos, Dodona, um, and in places where people go like Athens. Um, and those are sites of memory, and they can subtly alter the commemorative charge of places like that. When you walk into a sanctuary where people have been uh, competing and setting up monuments and offering dedications to the gods for centuries and trying to set themselves apart from their peers, um, that's where that double bind of newness and remembering uh, <laughs> is operating on everyone that's involved there, on the person who might commission a monument, on the artists who execute that commission, on all the observers who are aware of that commemorative charge and see how it's being altered by this new monument yeah. and what people are trying to say about their own accomplishment, how they might be trying to erase those of others? Mm-hmm. Um, it is a kind of translation.
0: Hmm. Wow, how interesting! And it makes me think of some of the controversies today, just in our own life in in America. You know, one administration trying to erase the accomplishments of another. It happens Absolutely. in such quick succession, but. Um, so um in addition to the sculpture that we've talked about some of some of these um sort of monumental um uh things and the the music that you work with oleg um it, it, how conscious are our audiences of what's actually happening when when they you know, they, they hear uh, the version, I have heard your guitar colleagues from Russia when they've come here, and it is an amazing sound. It is very different from what groups of guitars sound like um, playing the traditional six-string guitar here. But um, are audiences generally aware of the process artists have gone through in retranslating this material or translating the material? Do you think?
9: Um, well, I think the example of guitar I'll let, all I speak to, but uh, one of the aspects of intersemiotic translation that I think is important is that it moves away from the concept of the audience as a consumer yeah. and of the translator as producing a product for them to... Uh, a, a finished product for them to consume. Mm-hmm. And in an age where consumerism is everywhere and uh, passivity is encouraged... I think it's really important to create events and situations where um, a partici- the, the audience member is actually a participant in the translating process um, and is empowered to do so, so that the translator becomes a mediator uh, that provides a number of entry points to an original source text or artefact. And lets the 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 viewer or the listener or the participant actively construct meaning out of the starting point that the mediator has provided.
7: Mm-hmm. I'm just listening to Madeline and all of those possibilities. I'm wondering if every musician is an inter, inter, <laughs> inter <what? laughs> you know, Definitely. because you start you start yeah. uh, and I think that uh, you know even if we're accepted, you know this is what happens, inter-semiotic translation, every musician, I think we can actually see uh, the degrees of of translation, to to what extent, you know, an act of performing a piece of music in public or in front of a microphone, to what extent it's actually a powerful reading of the original score. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, my background is in Uh, so-called historically informed performance or play originally it was called something like authentic performance or performance on authentic instruments people very quickly realized that this language is dangerous and nobody knows what's authentic but (laughs) in my humble sort of musical practice i discovered at least two kinds of musicians you know the uh, child prodigies, uh, wunderkinds, etc., who start playing at the age of three, who never had the chance to think, who are always pushed to be better and faster and louder, and uh, therefore they are—they exist in the present-day interpretation. They—they they actually don't necessarily go back to the context in which the piece was written, to the yeah. treatises, in uh, that kind of coincide with the, with this. Uh, time, uh, to the peculiarities of notation, to various other sources. I mean, all of that are specific traits of someone who was taught uh, or taught himself herself uh, historically informed performance. That is the historically informed mm-hmm. component. And uh, um, that, that type of performer tends to come to music later in life, you know, n- n- after having done something else. Um, not necessarily music is the first choice, and not necessarily the most brilliant uh, musical abilities from the beginning, but the intellect that can connect uh, the sound and uh, and the culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a very, you know, when I think about a performer like that, it's very easy for me to use the word intersemiotic.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I remember a few years ago, you may recall that Sting did a recording of some John Deland music, which I thought was... T- absolutely beautiful. I worked in classical music at the time, and oh my gosh, the comments from uh, classical music lovers were all over the map, and I recall very negative at the, at, when that was first released. It was it was somehow a newer interpretation of some of the Dowland works, and um, I guess we all know what we like and what we don't like, or what we're used to, and, and so on, but... Um, just move, taking a moment to go back to you, Thomas, um, I know that your talk is about the translation, translating glory. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell us what you mean by that, the translation of glory.
8: Sure. This is a little bit, uh, if I can build, pick up that thread that, of um, commemoration and erasure that we can read um, in a monument. And we particularly uh, begin to see that again in the Hellenistic period in these pan-Hellenic sanctuaries, but the people that are competing um, are Hellenistic dynasts. Um, so you can see, I'm going to be talking about Macedonians and Romans and how that conflict and rivalry in the ultimate, spoiler alert, triumph of Rome
5: <laughs> <laughs>
8: is played out in a commemorative program by a guy called Lucius Aemilius Paulus. But um, I, I suppose and what might be salient here is that what we can see there is um, a series of monuments in which the Roman victory over the Macedonians exploits Macedonian iconography that's Mm -hmm. been established and um, exploits um, sites where Macedonian victories had been celebrated uh, in these charged environments. Um, So um, again, it's a kind of iconographic act of translation Mm -hmm. of commemoration of erasure.
0: Gosh, well, it is such interesting stuff. I, I hope that everyone who has a chance to go and enjoy some of the uh, colloquium here in the next couple days will do so. I know you'll all be speaking and taking part in that. So um, I'd like to say thank you to you, Madeline Campbell and Oleg hey. Timofeev hey. and Thomas Rose hey. so much for being here and to all of our guests this evening. Uh, just a reminder that the reading and retranslation colloquium begins tomorrow and runs through Saturday, and the public is invited to attend any or all of the sessions. Um, you can find the schedule at the Inter- International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, these World Canvas programs are all available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. And just a reminder our next program will be on April 11th in this room. Uh, we'll be launching the Provost Global Forum that evening with a discussion called Why School Education and Social Transformation. Um, so we hope you can join us for that program. And uh, I'm Joan Kerr, so for all of us, thank you for being with us tonight and good night.